but it's important to acknowledge that you do have the power to make something different about your financial circumstances, regardless of what your circumstances are. We are Gold Ivy, a health company dedicated to simplifying health and wellness. The industry is lacking the honest experience and grit required to overcome the struggle, and we're here to fill that gap. You decide what works for your daily life and how to transform our lessons into your gold. Join us on the fearless pursuit of self-discovery and growth. This is Ivy Unleashed, a Gold Ivy production. Hello, hello. Welcome back to Ivy Unleashed. You are here with Brooke and Andrea. Yes, we are carrying on the Mental Health Awareness Month with a very important topic, and we are so excited. Uh, And it's financial wellness, which is something we all think about every day. And we brought back a highly requested guest that you have all raved about from episode seven, all about self-care featuring Sonia Eklund. Yeah, so Sonia is a national board certified health and wellness coach, a yoga teacher, a financial wellness professional, a low-impact minimalist, a debt-free lifestyler, and a houseplant enthusiast. She has over nine years of coaching experience in both corporate wellness and private practice and has helped thousands of clients become the happiest and healthiest versions of themselves. Sonia empowers people to create mindful, sustainable, and intentional lifestyles through the art of coaching. She is passionate about helping people rewrite their money stories, and her financial coaching workbook has helped over 100 people create a proactive financial well-being plan. Sonia, thank you for being here, and welcome back to Ivy Unleashed. Thank you so much for having me back. It is wonderful to be here again with the two of you. We are pumped about this topic. We both have been just waiting and waiting to have you back, first of all, Mm -hmm. but also to talk about financial well-being. I mean, it's one of those things that when it comes to mental health, some people might think like finance, what? But what are we thinking about all the time? We're always thinking about Mm -hmm. money. And so we just want to kind of jump in with you telling us, you know, what does financial well-being even mean? Absolutely. Yeah, it's a great question. And it is so connected to our mental health and well-being. So really, the the definition of financial well-being is a state wherein people can meet financial obligations, feel secure in their financial future, and be able to make choices that allow them to enjoy life. So just even within that, that is definitely pretty wrapped up with our, our mental and emotional state. For sure. And how did you get into this? You know, I know you're a coach and you have a lot of hobbies, but how did you get into this space? Yeah, for sure. I'd love to share a little bit about my story and really what brought me here. Um, And my my financial story really starts um, when I was 26. And when I moved back to Minneapolis with a car full of stuff, my dog, $6,000 in my checking account, $40,000 in debt, no job, and was living in my mom's basement. So before all that, I was living with my boyfriend of three and a half years, and we lived together in his house in a small town in Iowa, and I had six jobs when I lived there, and I just always felt like I was struggling. Really, when I realized that I wanted to leave the relationship that I had been in for three and a half years, I felt like I couldn't. I felt like I didn't have enough money to leave, and I felt like I had invested so much time and energy and money into both his house, into our car, 
into our life together and just into everything that I had really built with him, that walking away from all of it felt like a failure. So I stayed in the relationship longer than I should have, partially because of money. And I can definitely tell you that when I first moved back to Minneapolis with car full of stuff, my dog, $6,000 in my checking account, $40,000 in debt, no job, and living in my mom's basement, I really felt like a failure. And so then what happened after that is that I made a really bold decision to spend about $2,000 on a yoga teacher training program. And if you're doing the math here, that was like a third of my money. And it was a risky choice, but it ended up being one of the best choices that I ever made. And the reason for that is because through that program, I had this chance to work on myself. And I had an opportunity to really figure out like what was holding me back in life. What created the conditions where I felt so stuck in my own circumstances that I couldn't leave a relationship? What self-limiting beliefs were like standing in my way of being who I really wanted to be? And I just felt like I had this chance to like figure things out and sort of start over. So that all led to me changing the story that I was telling myself about being a failure. Instead of looking at where I was in life and thinking that I had failed, I started talking about it like it was an opportunity. And it really was. I mean, like I had a, a chance to start again. I was lucky enough that my mom was willing to let me crash in her basement. I had a chance to really think about what I wanted out of my career, to spend some time healing from a difficult breakup, and to focus on paying off my debt. So that's kind of how I got started. I made the final payment on my $40,000 of student loan debt on April 10th of 2017 when I was 28 years old. And on the same day that that happened, I also had to have an emergency appendectomy. What? (laughs) (laughs) So just before they put me under anesthesia, the surgeon was just, you know, checking in with me. He's like strapping up my compression leggings. And he's like, is there anything that you want to say before we put you under? (laughs) And I remember just like staring at these bright lights on the ceiling. And I was like, yes, I paid off my student loans today. And I will be so pissed if I die. on the same day that I became debt free and everybody in the room just laughed and they all clapped for me. And they were like, we get it. We've got you. No worries. And I woke up an hour later with no appendix and like $4,000 of new medical debt. And that's when I really realized how much passion I have around this subject, how much I love the journey of figuring out how to overcome this complex and emotionally difficult thing, which was my financial story. And I realized just how much I loved talking about it and how much I love empowering other people to really own their own stories about their financial well-being and, of course, to make really proactive and powerful decisions about their money. My gosh, I love that. Yeah, and I love how you, when you talk about your own story, it's really about that mindset shift between, okay, I'm owning my own story. I have the control that a lot of us feel out of control when it comes to money. And in your financial well-being workbook, you really start with that relationship, that it comes down to those hard questions that you ask yourself about when you think of money, what comes to mind? So I'd love to hear kind of how you created this financial well-being book or when you're working with clients, where that conversation starts when we talk about money. Yeah, I love that you just used the word relationship because that's exactly what it is. We have a really unique personal relationship with our own financial well-being. And so 
really what I do as a financial well-being coach is that I first help people define what financial well-being looks like for them as an individual. And through that process, I help people kind of discover what it is that they want out of life. I help them set sort of a meaningful and personal vision for their own financial well-being. Um, we discuss the habits that really contribute to their success. We break down challenges and barriers, and I help hold them accountable to making progress. So just like coaching on every other area, this is really done through active listening, reflecting, asking really open-ended questions, um, remaining curious, and just having a meaningful conversation that helps the person get clear on what their action steps need to be and help them take some direction. So what I realized in doing my work as a financial well-being coach is that people have a really hard time talking about this. Not everybody is ready for the commitment that it takes to actually work one-on-one -on -one with a professional and get serious about the real numbers and the real strategy and talking about what it is that they need to do. And I found that a lot of people were more comfortable with the idea of reflecting on it on their own before they started working with me individually. So I wrote my financial well-being workbook because it's what I wish I had had along my own financial journey of paying off my debt and figuring out how I wanted to, you know, have a new relationship with money. So financial well-being coaching is really about exploring each of the questions that are outlined in my workbook in a lot more personal detail, as well as really getting into the specific numbers and the specific strategy around how you're going to move forward with whatever your financial goal is. I thought the workbook was brilliant because it, well, first of all, it's beautiful, of course, because there's a plant on the front. Why wouldn't there be a plant on the front of it? But you start with this wheel of financial well-being that really gets you thinking, especially if you're a visual person. Mm -hmm. I feel like a lot of people, and I like numbers and there's numbers on it. I just feel like it, it's super appealing to think about all of these pieces that play into your financial well-being, things you don't even think about. Like there's one chunk of the pie that you have to explore and, and give yourself a number on how satisfied you are. And one of them is spending power. It really got me thinking about how do I feel about spending? Like, does mm -hmm. it make me uncomfortable? Do I feel empowered? Do I feel guilt? Do I feel shame? Like all of these feelings came over me. And then it was perfect because you, you look at this wheel, you get thinking, and then you dive right into these deep questions. And the questions uh, reminded me a lot of, of some journal prompts I did about a year ago that really made me think about what words come to mind when I think about money, what feelings come to mind when I think about money. Do I feel capable of owning a lot of money? And if not, why? And if yes, mm -hmm. why? And I just love how, how it started because before you even get into the meat of your numbers and what you have for income or what you have for budgeting or whatever – you're really thinking about, wow, this is a relationship with money. I really, like for me, I have a really skewed view when mm -hmm. it comes to uh, responsibility with money and um, feeling accountable with money or feeling like I'm in charge of it. It's this strange relationship that I'm, I'm super happy we're talking about and, and exploring. So thank Definitely. you. And it's, yeah, I'm so thrilled to be here talking about this and having this conversation. And I love what you just identified, which is the fact that this really starts with awareness. The intention of the wheel of financial well-being is to get clear on how you feel about all of the different aspects of your personal financial well-being and what the relationship looks like. Because if you find out that you feel really good about, you know, a few of the areas 
analysis and really bad about a few of the areas, that tells you something that maybe you didn't know before. It helps identify an area of focus where maybe you can put some additional attention and really think about how you want to address it and move forward. Yeah, I also think just putting it out on paper, right? Like getting it out of your head. For me, I never had money growing up. And same as you, Andrea, my perspective of it is completely skewed. And I worked with Sonia about a month ago or so before filling out the the workbook and really diving into that relationship. And it was stressful. You know, I I told Sonia when we first were on the phone, even though I was comfortable with her and I know her, it's still this just saying it out loud, this stress, this anxiety that overcomes me. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. And it's something that we don't want to talk about. We don't want to write it down. It's this real, this relationship of it's like better if we just don't talk about it, don't touch on it. So bringing out these questions, awareness, it's just, it's, it's like, just, just do it. Just get it out of your head and just do it. So Sonia, I'm curious your perspective on how to do that, how to stop feeling the shame and guilt and just like, this is healthy. This is what we need to talk about. It's good. It's Whatever your relationship with money is, it's okay. How do we get rid of that shame and guilt and just dive all in and own our money relationship? Yeah. So I think the first thing there is that we recognize that it's a process Mm -hmm. and we meet ourselves wherever we are on that journey. So if shame is the predominant emotion that you're experiencing when you talk about money, that's really good to know. And what that tells me is that probably a person who's dealing with a lot of shame is going to need to talk with someone who can meet them with a lot of empathy, someone who can truly show up for their experience and help them kind of move through the shame in a productive way. You know, I think traditionally in the world of of finance, we don't think about the world of like, you know, Wall Street being particularly empathetic. We think about financial advisors as like people in suits and people looking at spreadsheets all day and working on calculators. We don't really think about people who work in finance as being these really like warm, empathetic, compassionate people. And of course, there are lots of those people within the industry. But generally, the public's perception of finance is that it's very kind of cold and hard and there are a lot of rules and that the feelings don't have a seat at the table. And in my practice, the feelings are basically the whole reason why we're here having this conversation. This is really what drew me to the field in the first place. I have never been good at math. Numbers do not really compute in my brain very well, um, unless I have paper and a calculator to double check myself. But the feelings are something that I can really, really understand and empathize with. And so when I have a client who comes to me really deeply in shame, I think it's really important that I give them the tools and strategies to really kind of help unpack that, know that it's normal to some extent to feel some shame and really get at the underlying cause of why they're in that shame. And then we can address like exactly what we can do about it from a numbers perspective. Which totally makes sense because it is, each person is so unique with their relationship with money that you kind of have to unpack, okay, where is the starting point for them? Because each person's starting point is going to be different. And you talk about, you know, just how overwhelming it is. We're not taught this in school. You know, I think about me being a few years out of college and I'm like, damn, I wish I would have had a class to teach me all of this. And so just to have a coach to 
bounce things off of and different strategies and even talking to you and working with you, Sonia, the tips you had about where to start. Okay. Where, where is the shame coming from? And for me, it was my medical bills and not, you know, knowing that they're there and it's like this dark, scary cloud ahead of me and just having someone be like, okay, here's the first step. I want you to call and see if you can lessen those bills. Can you lessen your monthly payments? And I'm like, oh yeah, I never even thought of that. You know, these little nuggets that you can grab, but like you said, it's meeting you where you're at because everyone's starting point is going to be different. And there's a history Mm -hmm. before that. So there's how your parents talked to you about money, how much money you had growing up. And I think, especially in my situation, it's me coming from less money than my spouse and having student debt and Mm -hmm. him not. So on top of how I already struggled with money because I was like coming into the game with less, Mm -hmm. it's that he didn't have that at all. So then it's another dynamic. So it's how you grew up. It's the words, it's your culture, it's your relationships. It's so many things that it makes complete sense to have a coach help you sort through it all. Well, I think when you think about getting your finances in order, your mind immediately goes like, okay, I have to budget. I need a plan, but you got to start way deeper than that. And that's exactly what this workbook does. It gets you thinking so that you don't feel overwhelmed when you go to make that budget mm-hmm. is I think what was really helpful for me. Definitely. And so often people think that that is the first step. They think the first step is figuring out how to stop spending and how to kind of rein it in and how to budget and be really strict about following a plan. And, you know, I think about a budget the same way that I think about a meal plan or an exercise plan. It's a nice idea, but practically it doesn't always work out and it can lead to sort of a a cycle of feeling shame when you can't stick to it. So I'm not big on the word budget in my own practice because I feel like it connotes a lot of scarcity. I feel like it just automatically makes people feel like they have to stop experiencing joy and you know, like start pinching pennies and just really making sure that they're not spending anything. And that's the whole opposite point of what a budget is actually intended to do. So I like to think about it as really more like a spending plan, more like something that helps you build awareness around how much money you are spending so that you can get really clear on how much you need. So one of the things that I recommend doing for people who are kind of like new to the world of financial planning and they're just starting and they think maybe they need a budget is that I give them the assignment to really write down like where are your biggest expenses and, and how much money do those things cost? So big things like your rent and your mortgage, your utility bills, your credit card bills, your kids' expenses, student loans, medical debt, travel, groceries, all of those things and get a rough idea of how much money you spend on each of those things in a month. I think a really common misconception is that people feel like to have a budget, they need to track their spending kind of obsessively and like write down every single dollar that they spend. And my take on it is that it's a guideline. It's a little bit more loose. If you know that you're going to spend like roughly $100 a week on groceries or whatever it may be, then you can just have that dollar number in your head when you go to the grocery store and you can use it to sort of guide you and give you like a little bit of a conscious parameter when you are spending. But basically, I think that once you have that basic understanding, you don't have to obsess over the details. You don't have to live inside a spreadsheet and write everything down. And that 
gives the people a lot more space and helps them get out of that scarcity mindset. I love that idea. I love the the positive word instead of the restricting mm-hmm. word. It's it's just making me think so much of this is just which we've already said, but it's just another aspect of wellness. It's like having a workout plan and yeah, I'm training for a marathon, but do I always run exactly 19 miles on the day that I'm supposed to run 19 miles? No, and it's okay. And you're still building the skill of running or endurance, mm-hmm. or you're building the skill of awareness with money and being mindful with your money and yeah. where it's going. I think too, when you write it out, you're getting clear on your expenses, which you have, it's a part of the workbook is writing down your monthly expenses because unless you write it down or know exactly how much you're spending and have that, like you're saying, rough estimate, you don't know. Mm-hmm. It's mm-hmm. so easy for it to just go and go and swipe and swipe. Yeah. And it's empowering, I think, too, to know that I know these things. Mm-hmm. I actually, if you asked me, I would know. I think that's part of, you know, my guilt and shame around money is just feeling like I, I want more knowledge about it and then owning it. Like, I can read, I read books every day of my life. Like I can read about this. I can learn about this. Mm-hmm. I can own my ability to make money and spend money and save money. And I don't know why that's so hard for me to own that. It's so interesting. Why do you think it is so hard for you to own that? Like what stands out to you as a main reason why it might be difficult for you to really embody those feelings? Oh, I don't know why that makes me emotional for you to even ask me that. I think it's like starting out your life in debt as an adult, it made me feel like I was behind. Mm. And there's something in that. And I know it's not like my fault. And mm-hmm. I want to flip that to empower it. Like I've paid off my student debt. So I want to feel more empowered by that. I don't know. I'm working on it. I'm working on feeling more confident in my abilities, but it's hard. It's complicated. It's very complicated and it is hard. And there's a lot of stigma around this subject, just like there's a lot of stigma around mental health. We're taught not to talk about money. We're taught that it is like not classy to talk about how much you earn, how much you spend, et cetera. But it is a part of our lives that requires a lot of attention and requires a lot of care. And when we stigmatize it and tell people to not talk about it and to keep it to yourself and that it's kind of private, it breeds shame. Like, of course, it breeds shame because we're all in a space of feeling like we're alone and like we can't find empathy within the topic. And, you know, it's just a, it's a perpetuating cycle. For sure. And that's why I'm so thankful you're here, Sonia, to, to help me, mm-hmm. to help Brooke. And there's got to be other people out there. If there aren't, fine. I'm happy for you. Good. <laughs> Glad you've got your situation going great with money. But I think you're onto something, and I'm thinking about this now, is that this feels good to talk about it. It feels like a release. It's just like therapy. It's you like know? talking about anything yeah. that's weighing you down. Yeah. It's like getting it out in the open and then also having someone – to be like, it's okay. Like it is overwhelming. You're feeling this way for a reason. Let's own it. Let's acknowledge it. And then let's do something about it. Mm -hmm. So I'm thinking about, okay, financial planning. We got our plan in place. There's all of these different methods when it comes to paying back debt and kind of where to start when you're on this journey. So Sonia, I'd love for you to walk us through kind of your approach when it comes to paying back debt, when it comes to starting past the awareness. We've got the awareness down and now what? 
this is a tricky question to answer on a podcast because it's going to be so different for each individual. Um, but there generally are two main methods when it comes to paying down debt. There's the snowball method where you pay off the smallest amount of debt on one credit card or you know one line of, of debt and then you move to the next one. Um, and then there's the avalanche method, which is where you pay off the debt with the most substantial interest rate and you move down from that. And so really both of those methods get at your inner psychology. Both of those methods are designed to work for people who want either like the quick win of paying off the smallest amount of money or who want to do things really logically and pay off like the thing that's accumulating and accruing the most interest. So it's really like it actually does come back to the awareness piece mm -hmm. of like, what do you feel best about when you think about paying back your debt? That's what will really help you decide which strategy is right for you. Question. What if you and your spouse disagree on that? Because my mind, I want to just pay off one and get it done and then move on to mm -hmm. the next. And my husband's like, absolutely not. You go with the highest interest rate and you spread out the payments. So <laughs> we disagree on that. So I guess what's your advice for us when we uh, have this disagreement? <laughs> That's such a good question. I think that the, the best thing to do is to be open and honest and communicate why you feel that way. Mm -hmm. Really get at what it is about the method that you're advocating for that helps you feel good. Once you can both uncover each other's mutual motivations and truly understand each other, it might be easier to figure out a compromise and meet in the middle. But I think it really comes down to just understanding why it's important to you to do it one way over the other. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Sonia's going to come to my house, talk to me about self-care, finances, marriage. What else you got, Sonia? So a lot of people have debt, right? Whether it's credit card debt or student debt, but then they also want to make sure there's enough in their checking, add up in their savings, investment. So when there's all these competing things, when it comes to where to put our money, where to save, how to save, what do you recommend? Again, definitely a hard question to answer because there's no one-size-fits-all answer to this. But I think it's really important to think about yourself before you think about others. In self-care, we have this whole concept of like putting on your own oxygen mask first. And this applies in the world of finances as well. And this is a hard thing for a lot of people to think about, especially parents who are like maybe balancing the competing priorities of like saving for their own retirement or saving for their children's college education, for instance. My personal stance on that is to save for your own retirement before funding your child's education. So when we're talking about those two priorities, that's the one that I would advise a person to choose. And the reason for that is because your kids have time mm -hmm. to make money, to be in debt, and to still live their lives. But when you are an adult working towards your retirement, you have a limited number of years to make contributions to those retirement accounts and you have a limited number of years for the contributions you make to accumulate a significant amount of interest. And so when you are kind of thinking about different priorities in your life, it is really important to think about yourself and your spouse um, or your partner in life before thinking about how you can support other individuals. I love that. 
Mm-hmm. It's a good point. It's hard though. It's, mm-hmm. It doesn't feel right. It's just like self-care. It's like flipping that mentality to, it is really important to care for yourself. And that's such a good point with time. You know, maybe mm-hmm. your kid's going to be brilliant, figure out how to make a mill right out of college, you know, <laughs> and then you don't have any money in your bank account. That's exactly right. Your kids might face very different financial barriers than you expect them to face. All you really know is your own financial situation and what you're dealing with. And so for us to speculate about what things are going to be like 15, 20 years in the future doesn't really make a lot of sense. What does make a lot of sense is knowing what we know now, which is that when you make contributions to your retirement account, you get to take advantage of compounding interest. And that, over time, gives you a pretty significant return and will ultimately enable you, hopefully, to retire at an age that you want to retire at, um, where you feel like you can do some fun things with your life in that chapter. What about other way around? So for those who don't have kids and Mm -hmm. they are fresh out of college and they do have this 401k and, you know, they're doing the match with their company, but they also have the student debt and the credit card debt and and just not a lot and don't have a lot in their savings because they're new to the real world and, and a big girl, big boy job. What about them? What about me? (laughs) (laughs) Such a good question. So I think that really comes back to one thing that I think is so important, which is it is never too early to start saving for your retirement. So, you know, in the scenario you just described, it sounds like that's a pretty proactive person who's already saving, already taking advantage of a company match, already potentially has enough in their checking account and maybe saving up for trips, et cetera. But I think when it comes to priorities around like debt versus saving, um, it's really important to think about the different interest rates and kind of play some numbers games. So when you think about investing in the market, so putting money away in a 401k or a Roth IRA or a traditional IRA, you're looking at like an average of six or 7% returns over time. When you're looking at debt, It depends on the debt, but auto debt and home debt might be like a three to five percent interest range. Student loan debt is more like a six to eight percent interest range. And then credit card debt is anywhere between like 15 and 30 percent interest. And so when you're really doing the math and figuring out like what do you need to prioritize, I will always encourage people to put something away towards savings just because of being able to take advantage of that compounding interest. But then my personal approach on this is pretty much always attacking the thing with the highest interest rate first, and that's almost always going to be your credit card debt. So focus on debt and savings, and then do the numbers game, figure out what makes sense for you and your situation, and breathe during it. (laughs) And breathe during it, yes. And this is where having someone like a financial coach can be really helpful, because there's some nuance to deciding, Mm -hmm. like, is it best to focus? on the debt first or is it better to focus on both debt and savings at the same time without knowing the specific numbers it's not possible to really answer that question and so this is where having a trusted professional in your life can be a really really helpful thing yeah and things that you never think of whether you're me 25 or like andrea 35 there's always something that comes about that you don't really think of so having someone who's in it every day all day and to ask you these questions to really get you thinking, okay, what is important for me? What do I, what do I need to do? What is my next step? Because 
when it comes to money, there's a lot of steps. Right. And something I keep thinking about too is, is what I do personally is I am either obsessing over it and checking it constantly and wanting to see the numbers Mm -hmm. go up or down or I'm like, ignorance is bliss. Yep. Charge it. So <laughs> I'm curious how you coach people to be mindful, but not obsessed. You know, where's the line? Like, how often should we be checking these numbers? How often should we be, like, looking at everything? So that's another one where I really love to encourage people to give themselves permission to just meet themselves wherever they are. When I was paying off my student loan debt, I looked at it every single day. Was that healthy? I don't know. (laughs) Is it what I needed to do? Definitely. I turned paying off my student loan debt into a game. So I would pay, I would literally make a payment of like $3.50, $7.08, whatever money was left over in my checking account, I would put towards my student loans because I ran the numbers and understood exactly what I was saving in interest in the long term and became a little bit competitive about paying it off. I would not necessarily recommend that strategy to other people, (laughs) but it worked really well for me at the time. So there's no right or wrong answer to how often you need to be checking these numbers. I think the way that you know if you're doing it wrong is if you feel like it's affecting your life, Mm -hmm. the quality of your life. And if it's starting to just kind of take over other aspects of your well-being, if you're not able to show up in your relationships because you're thinking about money or you're distracted in your job because you're thinking about money or you can't really be present with your kids because you're thinking about money, that's a sign that maybe there is an opportunity for a little bit of additional professional help. And get the conversation going. Yeah, I feel like as a parent now, I want to talk about it more. I want it to be an open conversation where we're showing that we're trying to be responsible with money we're thinking about it. We're working together to talk about how we want to do it. And our brains work differently. We're from different backgrounds. We have completely different jobs. Like talking through money, it's one of the biggest reasons people get divorces. And so mm-hmm. it's definitely something that I'm working on right now, as I know my kids are listening, that we just set up a rule that in our household, after church every Sunday, because it's a standing event that we're always going to be doing, whether it's virtual or in person, is we're going to sit down. And we're going to talk about whether our kids come into the room or not. Like we are having a conversation. Yeah. I think that's so important because your kids are going to see that from a young age and know that there doesn't have to be shame behind it. It is something that we can openly talk about. Something that I wish I had and moving forward want to get better at that now so that it does get easier. Like tackling this, it's never too late to tackle it. Yeah. Is how I feel. Teaching them too that you're always learning things about money. There's always new yeah. ways to invest money. There's always new things. And so they'll learn the lingo. And I just feel like it's a, a, it's an educational lesson for them if they do t- chime in and mm-hmm. probably some conflict resolution <laughs> between Justin and I talking it through that it's okay to talk about. It. It's okay to disagree. Yeah. You know, you don't have to agree on everything, but talking it through, especially with something that's as sensitive as money that you work so hard for, I'm excited for this new chapter and I'm excited for this workbook to just keep it around. Mm -hmm. Definitely. And I think another thing that's so important when having conversations about money in front of kids is helping them understand that money is not a moral issue. Just like food is not a moral issue. Food can neither be good nor bad. Same thing is true with money. What you do with money can definitely be good or bad depending on your own value system. But money inherently does not have a moral value. 
And I think it's really important to make sure that your kids don't grow up with this idea that like having money is bad, because that is a really common money story that I hear all the time. Another common money story I hear a lot is that debt is bad. People ask me that all the time. They're like, is it bad that I have debt? Should I be debt free? And it makes me so sad that that's such a common thing that people experience because no, debt is not bad. It's not bad to borrow money at all. Most people cannot just like pay for expenses like college, a house, a car, a medical procedure out of their pocket. And that's the whole point of being able to borrow money. What is important when you do borrow money is just having awareness around borrowing that money and having awareness of what that debt actually means, both in terms of the interest rate, in terms of, you know, kind of setting up an automated system so that you don't ever get charged for things like late fees, shopping for loans with the lowest interest rates, like understanding how your credit score can impact the type of loans you have access to, etc. But borrowing money and carrying debt does not hold any moral value, just like money itself does not hold any moral weight. I think that's something that really helped me too is when I am, you know, getting anxious or feeling that shame and guilt around my debt, it's okay, this is a normal thing. And what do I have control over? I have control over how I move next, how I pay it back. Do I have, like you're saying, my automatic payment set up? Do I know exactly what I'm doing each month, how to check in? These little things that, okay, I am doing something about it. And the fact that I am aware and I am doing something just helps relieve some of that stress. Mm-hmm. And Sonia, something you said about, you know, the moral value of money and thinking of money on its own is money. And Actually, there should be a lot of positive words you associate with that because it creates opportunity and beauty and all of these wonderful things that it took me a while to get to those words. When I started, it was, I think the journal prompt was from You're a Badass at Making Money. Such a good book. So good. Jen Sincero, not Sincero. (laughs) That book, the question was, what words come to mind when you think about having a lot of money? And I was like, greed, greedy superficial, bougie, all these things that I've never wanted to be. And I don't know if it's like the religion in me that wants to keep things simple and that, or maybe it's the movies I've watched or what it is. But I think it's important to explore those words that come to mind when you think about having a ton of money. Like how would you feel with a ton of money? And great. Instead of feeling (laughs) awesome, I get overwhelmed by it. I, there's something in me that feels like I wouldn't know what to do. I wouldn't be responsible. I can't be trusted. And I I wrote all these things. And then her prompts got me to, you are absolutely knowledgeable, Mm -hmm. capable. You deserve it. You are worthy of it. And you work your ass off. Why shouldn't you have a lot of money? And all of these things, you know, I I got to by doing all these prompts. Mm -hmm. But I'm curious where you think this happens. Like, where do you think these these moral words come into play and why? Mm. That's such a beautiful example of changing your own money story and really reframing your own thoughts around that topic. And, you know, I think a lot of these things come from our our parents' stories that they've handed down to us. I think a lot of it probably does come from religion. I think it comes from our education and upbringing. And again, the fact that like, really, sex and money, two things you don't talk about. Like that's a well understood concept in our society. And I think that is changing. I really do think that we're living in both a more sex positive and money positive society, which is great to see that happening. 
But, you know, I think that those, those stories are so powerful. Like you got to thinking I shouldn't have money because I can't trust myself. I can't be trusted to deal with this. And like, that's a really big feeling to experience. And my guess is that that's a feeling that you have probably about money, but maybe about other things in your life as well. And so when we can really get to the root of it, like you just identified, we can start to talk about what does trust look like for you? How could you build trust in your own life? And what could we do to, you know, help you move past that with money? I think what's so interesting about these stories that we tell ourselves with money is that they're self-fulfilling prophecies. We make them come true through our actions. So when I hear people talk about how like I can't be trusted with money, therefore I shouldn't have a lot of money, those are the people that I often see spending their money really irresponsibly. They like, you know, give it all away or they spend it all on things that they really don't need because they have this deep belief that they shouldn't have it. So they get rid of it as soon as they possibly can in ways that may or may not serve them. And I think that once you do move past that story and once you get to a place where you can recognize that money doesn't really have inherent moral value, you can start identifying altruistic values. You can start asking yourself big questions like, what do I believe in? What do I value? What do I want to see more of in society? And you can use your money then for a lot of good. You can use the money that you have to support causes that you believe in. I think people forget that we vote with our dollars every single day. And that the money in your bank account, retirement accounts, investment accounts, all of that money is working towards something. And it is really important to know where that money is going. So I think that once we really start to unravel those stories that are deep, deeply ingrained in us, we can start to identify how we want to change those things and then what we can do and where we can put our money to really magnify and amplify our impact. God, that's so, so powerful because it all comes back to what's important to you and it's this identity, right? Like you believe that you aren't trustworthy and so confirmation biased, your actions are going to prove what you think. And so it's coming down to what do I need to change this belief of who I am and what I want? These actions are ultimately representing what I believe, mm-hmm. which isn't what we think of when we think of money. Yeah. And mm-hmm. I, I think too, because we don't talk about it, we don't even have the words to put on this. Like yeah. I don't even have words to put on this the way I want to. You know, when you're just asking me a question, I'm like, I don't even know how to respond because mm-hmm. we talk so little about money that it's this language that I don't even know. And so I want to change that. And I think something that's helped me just get started are affirmations and saying to myself, I am capable of owning a lot of money. Mm. I am responsible with my income and I will be intentional with every dollar I make. Things like that where it's so basic, Mm -hmm. but I'm training my brain to to say it. I'm actually saying it out loud too. I have to say it because I'm trained, whether it's from myself or somebody else mm-hmm. or culture or whatever it may be, probably a lot of things to not know how to talk about this. And you're training yourself to believe it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And the other thing is that when we do start talking about it, then we have to check ourselves and our own judgment and our own stories that we tell about other people. It's really easy to get judgmental about money both our own money and other people's money. 
And it's also really easy to start comparing when we do start having these honest conversations. So like earlier when I was sharing my own story and I referenced this specific dollar amount, $40,000 of student loan debt, I'm curious if in people who are listening to this, if people had their own reaction to that, mm-hmm. if they were like 40,000, that's nothing. I have 110. Or if they were like, whoa, that's a lot of money. Or what, what the story is when you hear about somebody else's financial journey, because our natural tendency is to compare, to judge, and to make up a story about that person based on very little information. So as we do start being more open, honest, and transparent in our conversations about money, it's equally important to really focus on our own stories around judging, comparing, and just being able to hold space for other people's experiences. This is a a perfect example of why it's a part of mental health, Mm -hmm. why it's Mm -hmm. part of May. This is why we're talking about it. It plays into your thoughts. It plays into how you feel about yourself. It plays into every part of your life. Mm -hmm. Well, even I think of your self-worth, right? You play this comparison game of, well, they didn't have to pay for college or their mommy and Mm -hmm. daddy are paying for things. All these thoughts that you can't help but not think when you come from I don't want to say less privileged, but when you don't come from money, no matter what that looks like for you, mm-hmm. it's hard to not play the comparison game. Yeah, but I do think the more you dig into it, the more you see the value in it. So mm-hmm. I used to do that because it's hard when you're in it. It's hard when you're in college and you have three jobs and you're trying to get through school and it's overwhelming. I had like health issues because I was so stressed mm-hmm. out. But now the things I love most about myself or that I've worked my ass off and that I wasn't handed anything when it comes to money. And I had a lot of jobs that have created who I am Mm -hmm. and have taught my kids how to work hard. And you know, all of these things where it's like, it's changing the narrative. It is. And it's, I think it's time and experience and life. Yeah. And just truly getting into this workbook, I think is such a gift because these questions you could ask yourself every day and it could be a different answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. It's about building up self-confidence, self-esteem, self-efficacy, this idea that you can count on yourself, that you can trust yourself and that you can do hard things. And when it comes to the world of money, again, this is not a particularly accessible industry. Most people are really intimidated by just everything to do with the financial world. And so I think that when we can ask questions that really break it down to the most basic emotional ideas and beliefs that we hold about ourselves, the more accessible the conversation about money becomes. So clearly there's a lot you can do when it comes to your money. There is no right way to do anything money related. It's whatever's true to you. But Sonia, for someone who's listening, who is like, I could use some help. um, A lot of times we turn to a financial advisor, in your case, a financial coach. So I'm curious, what's the difference? What do you recommend? That's a great question. So they are really different things. A financial advisor really often is working with a specific money management firm and they have access to like literally your money and doing things with your money, moving it around, allocating your assets differently, really just kind of like actually making the move when it comes to your money. A financial coach is never going to touch your money and actually do things with it. They're going to empower you to figure out what the right decision is for your life to, you know, ultimately empower you to make those moves on your own. So really the difference is that a financial advisor is a fantastic choice if you have a lot of assets to manage. 
if you have a complex situation, like maybe you're dealing with closing down someone's estate or you're managing a, a large business or something like that, a financial advisor is a fantastic resource and a great person to work with. But for a lot of people who are just like young professionals who like make some money, spend some money, sometimes borrow some money and are just like generally saving for retirement, you might not necessarily need that level of human touch and that kind of involvement from a professional. And you might be just as well off using like a robo-investing service, which you can find through most big investment firms or big banks at a fraction of the cost of a financial advisor. So where I think the question to ask yourself when you're really thinking about which professional is right for you is, do I need help managing these assets or do I just need some direction and some help figuring out what the right path is for me to follow? Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. I like how you said that. I think sometimes you don't know, like, Mm -hmm. are they moving my money around? Like, what are they doing? Yeah. Yeah. Or you think that you like money is this overwhelming thing that you're like, I don't even want to touch it. Have someone else touch it for me. It goes back to the trust thing. Like, can I trust myself to make these decisions? And if you're informed enough, yes. Yeah. Or have a coach that is going to help get you informed. Definitely. And I think the the financial industry really counts on the fact that most people don't trust themselves Mm -hmm. with money. Most people truly do think that they need someone in a suit to manage all of their assets and move things around for them. Again, this is not a particularly accessible industry. And so I think that the financial industry really benefits from from this belief that people can't do this alone. But you absolutely can do it alone. If you need a little bit of help getting started, a coach is a great direction to take. But there are also a lot of wonderful books on this topic that you can read that will kind of grant you access to some really creative minds um, on the subject of financial well-being. And then further, you know, doing something as simple as downloading this workbook we've been referencing. This is a $10 investment that will really get you thinking about what your next financial steps need to be. And I think a really harsh reality check that comes along with the topic of money is that there are people who get something out of being a victim of their own circumstances and they don't want to change. And those are the same people who are going to say, I'm not going to buy a $10 workbook. I'm not going to invest in buying this financial book that I've been looking at at Target for months. I just know $10, that's, I don't know if that's worth it. I'm not going to do it. Those are the people who get something out of being stuck. And if that's where you are right now, great. But it's important to acknowledge that you do have the power to make something different about your financial circumstances regardless of what your circumstances are. Ooh, yeah. girl. Ignorance is not bliss. <laughs> no. If this is, if there's anything I've learned. I heard something uh, from someone a while ago. I don't remember who it was. I wish I did to give them credit, but it said what you pay for, you pay attention to. So if you're more likely to make an investment in something like say this workbook, you're going to fill it out because you paid for it. And it's helped Andrea and I so much, and I really, really recommend it. We will link it in our blog for everyone. Definitely recommend taking a look. And if you have any questions, if you fill out the workbook and you're like, I'm ready for that next step, Sonia is available to help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and to go along Absolutely. with what you said too, which Sonia, you're such a great resource for this too. And a lot of coaches that you and I know, we know people that need accountability through paying for things mm-hmm. because like you said you follow through and you pay for things we have a friend that's a coach that she has an app that she has to pay the app if she doesn't exercise 
And <laughs> yeah, if she doesn't, because then it helps her follow through. But then that money goes to a charity that she's already picked. So it's kind of oh, like you that's pay. That's so cool. Yeah. So I know there is this piece of the social aspect mm-hmm. of charity and donations and tithing. You know, there's there's lots of different things you can do with money besides saving and spending. And so do you touch on that with your clients, Sonia, on, you know, being socially responsible with your money and, and donating your charities or church? You know, how do you kind of approach that with people? Yeah, I, I love touching on that. I think that's one of my favorite parts of financial well-being coaching is that the more money you have, the more money you can give away to things that matter to you the more causes you can support and the more good you can do with your money. So that's definitely deeply ingrained in the workbook that we've been talking about is just this idea of like, what are your values? What do you care about in the world? Um, What kind of world do you want to live in? And then use your money to support those things. So we talked a little bit earlier about how the money that's in all of your different accounts is being used to support things. And uh, there's not a lot of transparency about what those things are, but there's a a new growing field called socially responsible investing or SRI, as well as environmental and social governance investing or SRG. Those are the same thing, but really it just pertains to investing your money in places that align with your values. So something that a lot of people don't know is that you can actually check out how your funds are graded on a variety of different things. My favorite resource for checking this out is a website called fossilfreefunds.org. And you can type in the ticker number of your investments and you can find out what grade that particular fund gets in terms of things like sustainability mandates, fossil fuel, deforestation, gender equality, civilian firearms, the prison industrial complex, military weapons, and tobacco. And those are things that people generally have some pretty strong feelings about and maybe want to know if their money is supporting or not supporting those things. So it's a really cool thing to just build some awareness around where your money is going um, when it's just passively sitting in the bank and when you're not really thinking about it. So that's more of like a, an action step that we take on like a big scale, like um, an institutional scale. But we also talk about it in terms of like a personal responsibility scale. What do you want to support? Where do you want your money going? One of my favorite things that I've been able to do with my money is support a, an organization called Sea Trees, which works to reforest kelp forest and mangrove forest projects and create coastal ecosystems that work to sequester carbon and ultimately is one of the best chances that we have for fighting climate change and being able to spend my money on something that means a lot to me and is working towards creating a better world leaves me with a feeling of not only trusting myself with my money, but knowing that I feel really good about um, my spending power, my earning power, and the type of world that I'm trying to create. You are a beautiful human being, Sonia. Wow. It just, I mean, this is a perfect example of, it's a never-ending process of Mm -hmm. learning about what your money can do. And it's, It's just so funny that you spoke on self-care because I just keep thinking so much about how this ties to self-care where you feel selfish doing it. It feels selfish Mm -hmm. to think of Mm self-care. Same with money. It's like there's something about that makes you feel selfish. And sometimes we need to think about something else in order to get empowered with money. Like sometimes it's hard for people to think about, 
I could have all of these things if I had this. It's uncomfortable. So thinking of maybe you start with what cause your money could go to. The more money I have, the more I can help people. The more money I have, the more I can go to my kids or however you need to start thinking about it to get yourself feeling empowered and informed about how much money you have, where it's going. And I love all of these things you're saying about the earth. We're going to link all of these, these websites you talked about because it's going to save the planet thinking deeper about where your money's going. I also think it makes it seem less overwhelming when you look at it as this never ending relationship. There's always something to learn. You're always building. You're always working on it, just like self-care, just like your fitness and taking care of you. It, there's no end goal. It's a it's the journey. It's not the destination, just like everything else we talk about. And to know that there's always something you're going to be learning. You don't have to have it all because there's no way you're going to know it all. Just kind of helps, at least for me, to relax and be like, okay, at least I'm thinking about it and doing something about it. And that's enough. Well, we are so thankful, Sonia, that you created this financial well-being workbook to keep the conversation and improvement of our relationship with money going. So where can our listeners find you and your work? So the best place to find me is on Instagram at Sonia Eklund. You can also find my website at soniaeklund.com. And both of those places have direct links to take you to my Etsy page where you'll find this workbook as well as several other workbooks on a variety of coaching topics. Awesome. I love it. And we just want to thank you so much for being back here again today. You know, financial well-being is something that's on all of our minds and we all want to be at peace with money. And you are just the perfect person, proved again, the perfect person to walk us through this because we don't have to be afraid of it. It's something we can definitely just own and and continue to get at peace with and and empower ourselves. So thank you so much for your time and insight today, Sonia. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Yes, thank you. And we want to make sure that you guys all have access to Sonia. So we will link everything she just said, her workbook, her Etsy page, her Instagram in our blog. And you can find that on our website, goldivyhealthco.com. We'll also plug it in all of our socials at Gold Ivy Health Co. All right, now it's time for our three gold stars. All right, number one, understand the facts and the feelings of your financial situation. And ask yourself what level of commitment you're ready for. Is it a workbook? Is it a coach? Is it a financial advisor? Number two is automate your money and make your money work for you. We talked a little bit about how a budget can feel really restrictive. And we talked a lot about making a plan to pay down your debt. And the best way to do both of those things is through the power of automation. When you set up automatic payments towards your savings account and towards your debt, your money works for you and you don't really have to think about it. Number three is no matter how old or how young you are, start saving for retirement. If you don't already have a Roth IRA, open one and fund it ASAP. Love them. Yes. All right. Let's unleash some IV. Sonia, are you ready? Rapid fire questions. I'm ready. All mm-hmm. right. What's one way you practice living in abundance versus scarcity? I build abundance into my own financial plan. And that way I never, ever have to question living abundantly. Like you give yourself a little cushion? Or what do you mean, what do you mean by <laughs> yeah, adding I abundance? Hear more. Yeah. 
You could definitely say I give myself a cushion. I, I plan for the things that make me feel alive and the ways in which I want my life to feel abundant. So an example of this is there is no limit on how much money I will spend on food, self-care, and self-development. I really believe that the best investment you can possibly make is in yourself. And so for me, it's really important that I always invest in my education, this ongoing learning and development, as well as my body, nourishing my body with food that tastes delicious and that I really enjoy, as well as self-care that helps me live as the most compassionate and kind and empowered version of me. Yeah. And that's something that you had told me when I was worrying about spending all this money on my health and and figuring out what's going to make me feel well. And you said the simple statement of you're investing in yourself. Mm -hmm. It's worth it. No matter how much money you put into yourself, you're investing in you and you don't need to justify that. And so that's something that has always stuck with me or has since you said that. So I just want to say thank you for that. You are welcome. I hope that that's something your listeners can take away. Sonia, you're younger than me, but I want to be you when I grow up. Okay, (laughs) next question. When you're really struggling with a financial decision, what's one thing that steers you in a positive direction? I address both the facts and the feelings that are behind the struggle. So if I'm really struggling to make a financial decision, I will write down the numbers and I will play with them and figure out what is the smartest financial move I can make. And I will balance that with how I feel about the decision and what I need to consider when it comes to my own emotional experience. I personally call my mom about the feelings and I call my stepdad about the facts. They are my two trusted people who I really can talk about all aspects of my financial situation with. And I'm so grateful that I can really address both the facts and the feelings typically in one conversation with the two of them. That's so important. Have people that you trust that you can talk to because this stuff is overwhelming. So even if it isn't a coach or a advisor, just to have someone to help walk you through it, I think is really important. And I'm glad you touched on that. Mm-hmm. All right. Last question. What's one thing you wish you would have known sooner about money? That it is never too late to start saving and it's is never too late to change your money story. Beautiful. All right. And as always, we'd like to leave our listeners with a piece of gold, a quote that speaks to you. Sonia, would you like to leave our listeners with a piece of gold? I would love to. So this quote is from Marianne Williamson, and she says, the key to abundance is meeting limited circumstances with unlimited thoughts. This is Gold Ivy signing off. Listen to your truth and go chase your golds.